0: Many, therefore, of the Jews, who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus therefore no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift of your word you've given us we just uh, we love you lord we just we just thank you that you've opened our eyes uh, to see see things lord we pray that you'd open our eyes even more today we pray that you would guide tom uh, to lead us into the study of this great passage lord we pray these things in the name of jesus
1: thank you brother. good morning have you guys ever uh, met a christian who seems to be so clear So confident, so focused that you're convinced nothing could ever distract that person from his or her purpose. You ever wish you could be like that? Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, was that kind of Christ follower. And you and I need to to learn a thing or two from her. The passage that we're looking at this morning creates, it presents uh, another stark contrast. There are many of those in the Gospel of John. In this case, it's a contrast between men who are obsessed with things that don't matter and one woman who is obsessed with that which matters above all else. The men in this passage are in panic mode, anxiously trying to figure out how to protect what they deem to be important. The woman, Mary, isn't in panic mode at all. She acts with a decisiveness, a clarity that many people never experience even for a single moment of their lives on this earth. Many of the people around her during this event think that Mary is nuts. That the priorities that are driving her actions are irresponsible and foolish. But she's, she's the one who has the value proposition exactly right. My title for this message is The Beautiful Clarity of Knowing What Really Matters. And the person through whom God is going to show us that clarity is this dear lover of Jesus named Mary. Verses 45 and 46 of John 11 make a transition between the passage that told us about Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead and the events that followed close on the heels of that amazing miracle involving both The Jewish leadership at the temple in Jerusalem and the family of Lazarus. Many Jews, according to John, had been gathered to mourn with Mary and Martha after the death of their brother, Lazarus. They had witnessed God's resurrection of Lazarus by the word of Jesus after Lazarus had been well and duly dead for four whole days. John tells us that that many of those Jews who saw this miracle believed in Jesus. But then he adds, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. We've seen that pattern before as well. Now that prompted an emergency meeting of the leaders from the temple in Jerusalem. This is the most powerful group of Jews in the entire Roman Empire. Verses 47 and 48 are very illuminating when it comes to understanding how the thinking of the unredeemed mind works. See, these, these Jews do not deny that Jesus had just raised a man from the dead and not long before that had healed a man who had been blind from birth. And they acknowledge that based on what Jesus had been doing, it really made perfect sense for the people to be believing in Him, to be trusting in Him as the Messiah. They say in those verses, if, in verse 48, if we let Jesus go on like this, all men will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation many of the Jewish people were realizing that only God's promised Messiah could do the things that they had been seeing Jesus do. Now, I'm not saying that the leaders, the temple authorities, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but it's very clear in this passage that they understood why these people were coming to that conclusion. These men could not allow themselves to embrace that conclusion and to trust in Jesus. Why? Because they were bent on protecting their place and their nation. The Jewish ruling class, especially the Jews who led at the Jerusalem temple, were in the catbird seat. They were in a wonderful position when it came to enjoying wealth and power and prestige. They were accountable to the Roman authorities, the Roman government, but as long as they didn't get crossed up with Caesar, the Roman officials pretty much allowed the Jewish leaders to rule over the Jews how they saw fit. The priests and rabbis and the experts in the Jewish law were in a very desirable situation. They were revered by the Jews as men who had been chosen by God to lead his people. They received temple taxes every year from every Jew. They were to sustain the temple. And because of those taxes, these men were among the wealthiest men in in Palestine, which was by and large pretty poor. And they also received portions of the offerings, the sacrifices of, of animals and of grain and of wine. That the people brought when they came to the festivals three times a year. It was like having a great salary with a really, really great meal plan thrown in. Being a member of the, the ruling class in Jerusalem was a really good gig. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, these men perceived that he was putting all of that at risk. And they were right. When people value things that don't matter to God, the things that those people value are always at grievous risk. You know why? Because God is very, very serious about doing things His way and not our way. There's someone else in this passage who was clinging anxiously to what doesn't matter. And that person is Judas Iscariot, the the man that we all love to hate. Judas has often been characterized by scholars, Bible scholars, as a, a zealot. A man who was driven by his longing for the coming of the promised Messiah with the understanding that that Messiah was going to jump directly to all the Old Testament prophecies about establishing God's kingdom on earth and bringing Israel back to the position of the highest nation among all the nations, the top of the food chain among all peoples. Now that thinking may have been in Judas' mind, but to say that zeal for Israel was the essence of what motivated him uh, paints Judas with far too generous a brush. If you look at what John tells us right here, he tells us that Judas was the worst kind of thief. You know, the kind that steals from the people that are closest to him. He was the keeper of the money box from which supplies for the disciples and food for the disciples and for Jesus were purchased. And he liked to embezzle money from that box. So as he watched Mary pour out a jar of finest perfume to anoint Jesus and then wipe his feet with her hair, that was more than his greedy heart could stand. (laughs) Interestingly, he claimed the moral and spiritual high ground. He rebuked Mary by pointing out that that perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii, and that money could have been distributed to the poor. Isn't it amazing how readily people with evil motivations claim that their motivations are godly? What Judas actually cared about was getting more money, a lot more money, into that box so he could steal some and be less... (laughs) Subject to being noticed for it. The last group in this episode who were enamored with things that didn't matter was the disciples. While John singles out Judas, whose motivations were downright criminal, <laughs> Matthew's account of this same event tells us that the other disciples joined right in with Judas as he rebuked Mary. Listen as I read Matthew 26, verses 8 through 13. But the disciples were indignant. That means really, really mad when they saw this. And they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price. And the money given to the poor. Sound familiar? But Jesus, aware of this, said to to his disciples, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. And then he said, For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. If you'll notice in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his coming death, the the disciples generally miss what he's talking about. It's like they don't even notice. Mary noticed. Mary knew what was going on. And then he said, truly, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus told his disciples to memorialize what Mary had done, and they did. Even Jesus' own disciples saw Mary's actions as completely over the top, foolish, irresponsible, even ungodly and uncaring toward the poor. So when Jesus praised praised Mary for what she had just done for him, the disciples just (laughs) stood there dumbfounded. So if the disciples did not value Mary's unbounded devotion to Jesus, what did they value? Well, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 22, what was the very last thing that the disciples did before falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were supposed to be keeping watch on the night Jesus was arrested. Surely, right after the Last Supper, right after Jesus talked about the fact that he would not eat that meal with them again until he, he ate it with them in the kingdom, they must have been doing something constructive like praying, or fasting. No, the last thing that Luke records about the disciples before the scene in the garden is that they were arguing with one another about which one of them was to be regarded as greatest. Even as Jesus was taking his final steps toward the cross, his own disciples were still arguing over who would have the position of greatest prestige and power in his kingdom. So, To what were the disciples devoutly, obsessively clinging? And how different was their obsession compared with the obsession of the Jewish leaders who had utterly rejected Jesus? Well, it looks to me like it's pretty much the same obsession, with the main difference being that in Jesus' kingdom, the disciples figured they would get to replace those Jewish leaders. They would get to have even more power and more wealth and more influence and more prestige than those guys had ever had. Surely, you and I have never been guilty of such upside-down priorities, right? We would never put hope in the expectation that God is going to give us sufficient power and wealth and influence to free us from being victimized by the power and wealth of people less worthy than we. And of course, you and I don't know any Christians these days who feel threatened about the prospect of losing their place and their nation, right? Brothers and sisters, I understand the concern of many Christians in America about the rapidly accelerating loss of officially sanctioned protections for our beliefs and the way of life that we've enjoyed for many generations in this country. But those things were never, ever supposed to be the basis of our peace, our contentedness, and our joy during our time on this earth. Never in any way we should be thankful to God for granting us a measure of freedom to worship Him without the kind of official persecution that many, many Christians in other places in this world face every single day. We should pray for our earthly leaders in order that we may we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It's from First Timothy 2 but we are not supposed to agonize over the loss of a tranquil and quiet situation. We should expect and rejoice in our share in the sufferings of Jesus until He brings us into His glorious kingdom where there will be no more suffering. And the reason that you and I today are enabled to face Suffering and persecution with joy inexpressible and full of glory is because we, like Mary, know the King. We trust and we love and we follow our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and you and I know with certainty that He is all the well-being we will ever need. You know what inevitably happens when you value stuff that doesn't matter to God and shouldn't matter to you? Here's what happens. You don't value the things that do matter to God and that should matter to you. It's mutually exclusive. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and earthly riches. No one can serve two masters. doesn't matter what the other master is. You can't serve God and earthly money, material possessions. You also cannot at the same time serve God and self-made security and control over your circumstances. And if you are robbed of joy by the thought of losing the nation and the place that you have come to claim as your right, you're confused about which master you should be serving. Because there's nothing to fear when it comes to losing the place, or the nation that we have enjoyed however long we have enjoyed it. Because we are citizens of a kingdom that's coming and nobody can take that away from us. That doesn't mean that Christians don't get politically involved. It does not mean that we don't pursue social justice. It does not mean that we don't submit to governing authorities. We are to do those things with the whole heart. But our... Joy, our peace, our contentedness, our purpose has nothing to do with whether those things persist. Nothing whatsoever. If you're devoting yourself to any of those other masters, you will not be joyfully devoting yourself to Christ. And there's only one master worthy of your devotion. Not some of it. All of it. Okay, we've, we've looked at those who missed the mark in this passage. They're all males, by the way. Just... Now let's look at the hero of this passage among the mortal men who are mentioned in it. That hero is not a man. It's a woman. That actually happens quite a lot in the Bible. I believe that when you put all four gospel accounts together, you'll find that there are two separate incidents involving a woman who anointed Jesus with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. One happened at the home of Simon the Pharisee. The other happened at the home of Simon the leper. Simon was a very, very common name among Jews in Palestine in that era, so we shouldn't get excited about the fact that two stories with some similarity have the name Simon in them. The incident at the home of Simon the Pharisee is recorded early in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, toward the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, speak of a different incident involving a different woman whom John identifies as Mary. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that that event happened just two days before the Passover that would be forever marked by the crucifixion of Jesus. That event occurred at the home of Simon the leper in a town called Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. Now, Simon the leper himself is not actually mentioned as, as showing up in the passage. He's just mentioned to identify whose house these things happened in. I suspect, and this is just conjecture, but I'm not alone in it, that Simon the leper was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were still living in their family home. See, a person with advanced leprosy would be isolated physically from the general population, and and I suspect that Simon was living somewhere in isolation, but unlike the leprous beggars that Jesus healed... Simon was a man of means and of influence. That would explain why many Jews from the community had gathered to mourn the death of his son Lazarus. It would also explain how Mary came to be in possession of a jar of the most expensive perfume known in that culture in a quantity valued at nearly a year's salary for an average worker but mary was not a woman who cared about earthly wealth as i read and reread the account of mary's actions in this passage the word that kept coming to my mind was the word abandoned microsoft's built-in thesaurus brings up the following synonyms for that word the word abandoned when it's used as an adjective to describe a person's behavior Listen to this list of synonyms. Uncontrolled, unrestricted, uninhibited, unrestrained, reckless. Isn't that exactly what got the disciples of Jesus so freaked out about what Mary did in this passage? They saw it as so over the top that it was downright irresponsible. It showed no self-control. It showed no inhibition. It showed no restraint. Mary was reckless. But here's the kicker. According to Jesus' own assessment, what Mary did in this passage made perfect sense. It made better sense than you putting all of your assets into an investment that you know with a hundred percent certainty will yield a thousand percent return in a month. Because there is no earthly investment that can touch the investment of everything that we have in the service of the King of Kings, the Savior and Shepherd and Guardian of our souls. The Jewish leaders in this passage were panicked about the prospect of losing their place in their nation. Judas was panicked to see wealth that could have been his dripping through the cracks of Simon's floor. The disciples were outraged to see that same wealth thrown away on one act of devotion to Jesus instead of being put to use for many good works. Now compare their priorities to Mary's. What wealth made all other wealth of no importance to Mary? The eternal riches of knowing Jesus. What control did Mary feel the need to hold on to so her well-being would be covered? None at all. Because Jesus was her well-being. What good work did Mary do that Jesus praised and memorialized for all generations? (laughs) Here's the good work she did. She loved him. With all her heart, with all her stuff, she just loved him. What place was Mary obsessed with? The feet of Jesus. That was her place. When we met Wednesday morning to discuss this great passage, Bob Deffenbaugh said something I'll never forget. He said his feet were a pretty familiar place to Mary. Isn't that a great statement? How familiar is that place to you? You wonder why your priorities are different than hers? What's your favorite place? Listen to what Luke records about an earlier encounter between Jesus and Mary that talks about Mary's love of that same place. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they, Jesus and his disciples, were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you were worried and bothered about so many things. Only a few are necessary. Really, really, just one. (laughs) Just one. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall never be taken away from her. Now at the threshold of Jesus' death, Mary comes one last time to her favorite place, the feet of Jesus. But this time she comes to prepare him for his burial. The spikenard ointment with which she anointed Jesus' head and feet was the finest, most expensive perfume available in that culture and time. Judas placed the value of that perfume at 300 denarii. One denarius was a day's wages for the average worker. Factoring in the Sabbaths and festival days in which the Jews were not to work, 300 denarii would pretty much cover a year's. Wages for most workers in Palestine. If you translate that to our cultural context, that would be roughly $40,000 worth of perfume poured out on Jesus in one sitting. Would you consider that a reasonable thing to do? Or would you consider that frivolous and foolish? and pointless. How many times have you and I counseled believers in Jesus Christ to avoid that kind of frivolous behavior? Here's what we must not miss, beloved, because if we miss it, we get the motivation for this completely wrong. Nobody was twisting Mary's arm. It was not duty or law that drove Mary to this marvelous overflow of love toward Jesus. It was not guilt. It was the beautiful clarity of knowing who really matters. Of knowing who's really worthy. Of all that we have and of all that we are. Without reservation. All the time the Jews and Judas and even Jesus' most most faithful male disciples all got the value proposition wrong. Mary got it entirely right. How do we know she got it right? Jesus told us right here with his words of praise for Mary. In Matthew 26, he made it crystal clear, as I said, that Her actions were to be memorialized. They were to be remembered by all generations of God's people the way we're remembering them this morning. Because they were really, her actions were really, really, really important to Jesus. Of what is Jesus worthy? What does Jesus uniquely deserve to receive from us and from all of his creation? The words I'm about to read from Revelation 5 were written down by John, the same apostle who wrote this gospel, as he related a vision that God gave to him, a vision of the heavenly realm, a glorious vision. John writes, and I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures, that's the cherubim who guard the holy presence of God, kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Of what is Jesus worthy, beloved? Consider those words I just read from the vantage point of things that God has given to us that He has filled our hands with in order that we might give them back to Him. To the One who is worthy of all. And I'm old school, so I'm going to use the word men generically to refer to men, women, and children like the Bible does hundreds of times. Of what is Jesus worthy? All the power that God has given to men. All the the riches God has given to men. All of the wisdom that men possess. All of the might of every mighty warrior. All of the honor that we as human beings place in any person or thing. All of the glory that we ascribe to anyone or anything Every blessing that comes from the mouths of men. Jesus is worthy of some of that, isn't he? No. He's worthy of all of it. All of it. See, that's what drove Mary <laughs> to pour out an entire Years worth of material provision over the head of Jesus to anoint him for his burial that jar of perfume didn't even put a dent in what belongs by right to the king of kings how did Mary come to have this beautiful clarity wouldn't we all like to know the answer to that question here's how it's not rocket, rocket science. It's actually, it's actually very simple. didn't say easy. It's simple. <laughs> Mary knew Jesus because whenever He would come to her town, she would park herself at His feet and listen to Him, pushing aside every other consideration to the point of being accused by her own sister and by the disciples of Jesus of irresponsibility. When's the last time you were accused of being irresponsible because of your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? And because she made his feet her favorite place, her heart became his. She loved him. She treasured him. Because she beheld Him and she saw His worth and there was no other way to respond to Him. She knew that He alone was worthy of all that she had and all that she was. Like the poor widow who gave her last coins to God at the temple, there was nothing that Mary even cared to hold back from her glorious Savior and Master. Beloved, that's not reckless. That's the opposite of reckless that's the wisest assessment of real value that any human being can ever come to Jesus is worthy of all there's one other exceedingly important point here that we must not miss there may be more but there's one other that that I caught there is a simple and profound profound reality that makes joyful, unreserved devotion to Jesus the only reasonable way for us to live. And here's that reality. When all is said and done, God is going to have His way. When all the plans of men have vanished like dust in the wind, it will be God's plan that prevails, and God's plan is for Jesus to be our all in all. The discussion among the Jewish leaders at the beginning of these passages is is amazing. Most of the Jews gathered for that meeting were in panic mode, lamenting the loss of their place and of their nation that would result if the mass defection to Jesus kept going on. But in the midst of that panic, a man named Caiaphas, that year's high priest, calmly said to the others, You know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Caiaphas was a confident man, but he was dead wrong. John adds a little spirit-inspired editorial comment that completely changes how we understand the words of Caiaphas. He says, Now this... He did not say on his own initiative, but being the high priest in that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. You know why the Jews, why the Jewish leaders planned together to kill Jesus? Because God appointed them to kill Jesus. The passage opens and closes with the Jewish religious leaders zealously plotting to kill Jesus Christ. And by the end of the passage, they're also plotting to kill Lazarus. Nobody cared about Lazarus until Jesus raised him from the dead. Why'd they want to kill him? Get rid of the evidence. Right? So they could, when someone talked about Lazarus being raised from the dead, they could point and say, his grave is right over there and he's in it. That same reasoning would drive these same evil men to bribe a bunch of Roman soldiers just a few days later. If necessity is the mother of invention, panic kicks invention into overdrive. And if it were not for the sovereignty of God, the creativity that comes from men's panic would create only monsters. When Caiaphas said... It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. He thought, he was declaring that Jesus' death would secure the status quo. He thought that the death of Jesus would ensure that he and his companions could keep the power and wealth and prestige that they had come to see as their right. Caiaphas thought he was speaking for God. And you know what's great? He was. He was speaking for God, but he didn't have a clue what his own words meant. Isn't that great? God can speak through a donkey if he wants to. He did that with Balaam in the book of Numbers. In his sermon on this passage, R.C. Sproul said, God speaks through jackasses every Sunday morning. And then he added, present company included. That fits this room on this day as well. Almost done. The words that God uttered through the lips of Caiaphas had an entirely different meaning in the mind of God than they did in the mind of Caiaphas. And it was God's meaning that would prevail. One perfect man would indeed die for the nation and not for the nation only but for Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and people over the face of the entire earth. Jesus was about to be nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, not because men purposed to kill Him, but because Yahweh purposed to kill Him in our place. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who is Yahweh was focused like a laser beam on that very purpose and he tells us so later in this same chapter. Caiaphas and his plan (laughs) were as irrelevant to God's plan as irrelevant gets. That man was just a mouthpiece who didn't even know what he was talking about. That passage reminds me of Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 45, when Joseph finally revealed his identity to his brothers. They were scared to death that he was going to get even with them for selling him into slavery so many years before out of jealousy. But what did Joseph say to his brothers? He said, do not be afraid. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So who's in control? Now the Jewish leaders intended... Evil. In fact, they intended the greatest evil ever done by human beings in any generation. And what they intended for evil, God intended for good. The greatest good ever done for mankind. Who's in control? If you're here today and you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ alone, to save you from the everlasting wrath that you and I and everybody else deserves from the hand of God. Please know this. God's way is the way that will prevail. Denying your desperate need for Jesus is like standing on top of a very high building resolved to fly and denying gravity. Gravity always wins. And God's plan always prevails. And here's God's plan to save men and women and children. Don't miss it because there's only one plan. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Believe in Him and be saved. Let this be the day of your salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the greatest cause for rejoicing that mankind has ever known, the greatest foundation for peace and contentedness and certainty of blessedness that this world has ever known was standing right in the midst of the people gathered at the home of Simon the leper. Mary alone understood how worthy he was of all that she had and all that she was. He's right here in the midst of all who are gathered in this room this morning. And he dwells within every believer that he is redeemed as his own. And beloved, he is worthy of all. Dear Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see the incomparable worthiness of our glorious Savior and Master that we may joyfully lay all that we have and all that we are at his feet. We ask this for his sake in his beautiful name.